to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we're going to continue talking about our favourite reads of 2022, but this time with two of our favourite guests and authors, Devney Lucer and Nikki Payne. You might remember Nikki from our Jane Austen fandom episode from season 4.4 episode 1 and Devony from our Best Books of 2017 episode and our season 3 read-along of Mansfield Park, episode 17 to be precise. Now both of these ladies published books this year and we already know that they have been popular with our listeners because you guys have been recommending them to us on those social media threads that we posted on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, don't worry, we're going to get back to some of those. We're going to read some more recommendations from those threads. But first, let's go ahead and jump into the interview. Devney Lusa is an American literary critic and Jane Austen scholar. She is a Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University, where she focuses on women's writing and the history of the novel. In 2018, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship and a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award to research the sisters Jane and Anna Maria Porter. Her book, Sister Novelists, The Trailblazing Porter Sisters, who paved the way for Austin and the Brontes, is available now. Question for you. And this is something that we're always returning to on the podcast, right? Is like, you know... Why are we more familiar with someone like Jane Austen versus someone like Jane Porter? And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the great forgetting and maybe like, should we we be putting Sir Walter Scott like on our sort of like punching bag list with uh, Charles Dickens? Well, I don't I don't know about pu- punching bag list. It might that might be a bit of an overreaction for Scott. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that it's time to reinvestigate Scott from the hero he seems to be in Austin's life to many people for that great review he did of Emma in the Quarterly Review to a role that he took in the Porter sisters' lives that is just not so honorable or nice looking for sure. Uh, The Porter sisters, I think, were in part silenced by Scott's neglecting to mention that they had certainly to some degree inspired his writing. Not cool. Not cool. Why did did dudes do that? We don't need to answer that one. We can just let that hang in the air. Right. <laughs> um, now, how did you stumble across the Porter sisters? How did you find these gals? It was when I was working on the book on women writing in old age in Great Britain. And I had a chapter on Jane Porter. She was one of the writers that I selected out because she'd written uh, into her, old, her you know, old age then probably started, let's say, around age 60. She lived into her mid-70s and she had a kind of interesting late life. So I started looking around in the archives for what I could tell about the ways that she had tried in her late life to turn her earlier writing into a later income. <laughs> so ways that she republished things, but especially ways that she was trying to get a royal or government pension. They used to give pensions to authors in the UK. Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. that is amazing. I mean, for your service to the country, you know, you, your national service uh, would be recognized with some amount on a, a civil list pension or a royal pension. And every year she asked for one and didn't get it. She got ended up getting a couple of small grants, but I followed through the archive, her, her quest to get this pension. And the more I dug into the letters, I realized, you know, she really was that important. Like she wasn't 
overselling herself by saying, I'm one of the top writers. Like, why aren't you paying attention to me? You know, it wasn't just bloviating. It was true. Uh, but then I also started reading into the earlier letters with her younger sister, Anna Mariah, and they were riveting. And I just thought this needs to be more. And it took me a little while to realize that I was the one who needed to make it more, <laughs> but I thought this, this really needed to be a biography. And especially once I started noticing in their personal lives, their literary lives and their romantic lives, all of these kind of precursor resonances with Jane Austen's fictional plots. I was like, wow, here is Anna Mariah Porter who went by Mariah. You know, here's Mariah in a kind of persuasion moment or here she is in a kind of sense and sensibility moment. And it was in no way possible that Jane Austen could have been inspired by their lives. You know, these were secrets that were hidden in the letters. So I'm not saying that. But it did help me re-see Austen's plots. And the way I put it in Sister Novelist is that what I found in the letters were that Jane and Mariah Porter's lives were like funhouse mirror versions of Jane Austen's plots alongside these just really impressive writing careers the two sisters had, publishing 26 books separately and together. So they were prolific, important writers, innovators in the historical novel, but they also had these really difficult, fascinating, colorful, romantic lives. So it was like the literary marketplace and the marriage marketplace crashing up against each other. And I would say that's that's sort of the thrust of the book. I mean, the book could be adapted into a BBC miniseries. Absolutely. Okay, from your mouth to the BBC. <laughs> I mean, I was also like fascinated by Robert, their brother, I gotta say. Yeah, Robert deserves some more treatment, definitely, too. He's um, He's been a little bit forgotten. And I, I think it's wrong that somebody who was a pioneering panoramic artist, what we think of as panoramic artist, did these great historical pictures, important travel writer, and ultimately a South American diplomat married to a Russian princess. I mean, it's like, can you put any more details yeah. in here that sound like you're making it all up? <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, this guy deserves, uh, deserves his... Uh, moment in the sun as well. He doesn't always come out so well in the sisters' lives, I think. There were some like Bronte parallels I was making there in the beginning to uh, the artist, but he was uh, obviously a much more successful artist than Branwell. Yeah, but they had some they had some other brothers, as you saw from the book, who might have had more Branwell level difficulties, <laughs> right? Uh, that is true. <laughs> yes. We want to tell us a little bit about their lives, because I thought that was just, it's such a fascinating read, like the book itself, even like like outside of all of the like the literary history, I was like, these women are amazing. They're fascinating. Thank you, Lauren, for saying that. You know, I I just think it's so hard for me to know where to start in telling the story. It's it. Yeah, fair. And I think I've, as we've been going this first few minutes, I've kind of backed into it. But there are two sisters, two years apart, two to three years apart in uh, in their lives, and they. Uh, were exact contemporaries of Jane Austen's. So in fact, Jane Porter was born about two weeks before Jane Austen, but she was born in the north of England. And she grew up partly in Durham and partly in Edinburgh in much more impoverished circumstances than Jane Austen ever did. But the two sisters were each other's supports, not unlike Jane and Cassandra Austen, right? As we know about their collaborations as teens. The difference is that Jane and Anna Maria Porter sought print really early. Anna Maria first started publishing her books as a teen. Uh, Jane was in her late teens. And by their early 20s, they had become newly famous. And not too many years after that, global, global fame household names. 
So it was a very different trajectory from what happened with uh, Austin's life being waiting, you know, waiting till her 40s to start publishing. Now, do you think that their writing is similar or or do they have like very different styles? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. I I would say that I don't think the writing is similar. I think they have some similar sensibilities in real life, <laughs> you know, from what we can tell in the letters. Sure. You know, I think they felt similarly about what it meant to be a woman writer and uh, what it meant to be trying to keep one's polite reputation intact in a profession where politeness was not necessarily easily assumed. But in their writings, I think they were going for different things. You know, Jane Austen's got comedy and, uh, you know, I think her the morality, as much as it's definitely there, is making you question things in gray areas, right? At least that's how I read Jane Austen's work. But the Porters were doing something different. They were doing fiction that was historical. They researched their books like crazy. They were doing stories often of great men. Women were important in the history that they told, but most of these stories were centered around great historical men. And they wanted to show how these men interacted in political and domestic spheres to tell a morality tale. So there are moments of didacticism in the work that are asking us to use these pictures of perfection that would make Jane Austen sick and wicked, right? As she put it about right. pictures of perfection. Mm -hmm. the, the Jane and Anne Marie Porter's sisters of uh, pictures of perfection are definitely more serious. So I would say on the whole, the books are more serious. That said, they also have amazing cross-dressing and they have their sort of femme fatale figures. And there's there's just stuff going on there that you you it can be really drawn into and um, it just details that I think are beautiful. And they're, they're writing just sings. I mean, both of them could just really, really write. Uh, so it's a different kind of reading experience, but I think a great one. Kind of like apples and oranges, right? I mean, we like apples, we like yeah. oranges. It's okay that they both exist. I think we can love Jane Austen for what Jane Austen did, but appreciate the Porter sisters for what they were doing differently. Just throwing this out there. Um, because the stories are so rooted in, like in history, like maybe that's one of the reasons why, like, I'd say they've been forgotten, but like less, you know, looked at than you know, like an Austen novel. For yeah, something. I mean, I think our, I think now when we want morality, we go to self help books, right? <laughs> self help books, sure. how to lead, how to live. Novels, maybe we don't go to when we're saying, how should I, <laughs> how should I live my life? I think I'll read a novel. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I think it was a different time for novels. The novel was a different kind of genre. And the Porter sisters were definitely involved in raising its status from kind of circulating library trash and escapism and entertainment to something that was more serious and something that felt more weighty. So I do think that our changing tastes and our changing sense of what the novel does didn't do the Porters any favors. But I really think a lot of what happened to them is tied into what ended up happening to Sir Walter Scott. He just took all of the oxygen out of the room for the Porter sisters when Waverly hit big. And then all of those Waverly novels thereafter became sensations. And although the Porter sisters had a dozen years before him published best-selling historical novels, people started to forget. Or they said, oh yeah, those, those were the lesser versions that aren't as good as Scott. Uh, and Scott, who, and this is the, the PS that just gets me, Scott, who knew the Porter sisters when they were children, didn't publicly thank them 
or say that they'd been an inspiration or in any way acknowledge their role in his having turned from historical poetry to historical prose. And when he started to be credited with inventing the historical novel, there were some people who said, hey, wait, 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 what about those Porter sisters? Even up to 1850, when Jane Porter died, there were obituaries saying that she invented the historical romance, as it was called then. But gradually, Scott just took over everything. And he got that enormous, enormous memorial in Edinburgh, the tower, <laughs> recognizing his many achievements. All the literary elite lined up behind him. And Jane and Anna Maria Porter were increasingly forgotten. It was gradual. But I would say that is why they fell out of history. And obviously, I'm very passionate about this and probably could go on a lot longer than your listeners could stomach. <laughs> but but that's that in a nutshell. Yeah. And they corresponded later in life, too, right? Like towards the end of their lives? Yes. When uh, in middle age, they reconnected. Uh, Walter Scott and his wife were in London. And Jane, at that point, was with a, a society friend and called on them. And at this point, Jane and Anna Mariah were both pretty pissed off at Scott because he'd had, and it was about 1815, I think, and he had an opportunity in the year after Waverly was published and became this best-selling event. And the Porter sisters admired what he did in Waverly. They thought he did, you know, something kind of extraordinary in this bestseller. Uh, but he would have had a chance to say that the ways that his poems had sometimes used material from their novels and methods from their novels. And now Waverly, which he hadn't yet acknowledged as his, the Porters weren't sure it was his. They thought it might be by him, <laughs> but he, he didn't take the opportunity to say um, anything apparently that made them feel he understood them as having been an important influence. And they felt really hurt by it. And then he never did. Uh, but in the 1820s, so this is many years later, Jane Porter heard that he had acknowledged once in front of no less a personage than King George IV that the Waverly novels, which he still hadn't owned up as his own, but everyone kind of knew they were by him, that the Waverly novels had first gotten their start in Jane Porter's The Scottish Chiefs. And Scott, and Scott was said to have acknowledged in front of the king, there is something to what you say. But that's as far as he got. And that gossip got back to Jane Porter. Okay, well, I'm glad that got back to her, but still. Yeah. And then later, she ended up kind of uh, taking matters into her own hands. She said, I, someday I'll let the, pub, the public know the real genealogy of these matters. And she absolutely did. <laughs> it took her 15 years, but she got... How was that received by people? Uh, so, you know, I tell this story at, at, at greater length, obviously, in Sister Novelists, and I hope people will want to read it there. Uh, but she decided first to go forward in an anonymous publication, a kind of short story. And it's called, she titled it Nobody's Address, and then she changed it to Nobody's Journal. But it was kind of like a who's on first, Abbott and Costello thing with, uh, you know, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know, on third, and Abbott and Costello. This was like, nobody published the historical novel before Scott. And so now I'm going to write as nobody in nobody's journal. And it was a send up of, you know, if Scott is not going to, um, you know, acknowledge all these nobodies before, this is how I'm going to sort of stick a knife in him with this satirical piece of writing. But not long after that, she came out and acknowledged that she believed that she herself had inspired him. And when she did that under her own name, she was pretty much 
crucified. I mean, she was she was taken out by other satirists and the literary elite who said, how dare you? How dare you say that you were the inspiration, lowly Miss Porter, to the great Sir Walter Scott? This feels also like a great basis for a Taylor Swift song, too, by the way. <laughs> Just Taylor, if you're listening, I think that this would actually... <laughs> well, I love that, Laura. That's a great idea. Now, the Porter sisters, their lives are incredible. And 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 Robert, too, like as you've explained. Is there like an anecdote from their lives? I know, there's a lot. But is there one that you like think about that resonates with you that like, I don't know, that you find especially funny or interesting or something that you maybe even... Because there's a lot of letters. Like I've seen some pictures of the letters. Yeah. We're going through all of this correspondence. There had to be something that like kind of like struck out to you, I'm sure. So, you know, this, I, you know, I may have, um, I mentioned when we were chit-chatting that this book is the work of 20 years. So there are about 7,000 letters of the Porter family. And I did try to read them once and some of them twice. (laughs) And I wish I could have read them all the second time, the first time, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't even know what I was reading. Sure. I didn't know who even the major players Mm -hmm. were. Uh, But so these letters are just filled with such amazing, amazing riches. And do I have a favorite story? I have, I have little moments that I wish could be whole chapters. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. uh, here's one little moment that I love, Lauren. I'm not sure if this is one that you'll remember from the book. But there is a moment when Jane Porter, who is in her um, in her teens at this point, or maybe around 20, she's going off. She's just finished her first book, The Spirit of the Elbe, which is a gothic novel she didn't put her name on. And she's exhausted, physically exhausted. And she's decided to take up a friend's invitation and leave smoky, dirty London, where they did not live in a very nice place, and go to these wealthier friends who lived in Grantham and stay with them and try to recover her health from having exhausted herself writing this novel. Uh, We'd like to think that given what we know about Jane Austen's novels, that Catherine Moreland being sent off into a stagecoach on her own was this kind of dangerous, horrible thing. And how could General Tilney do that to her, right? Uh, Send her off home in this in the stagecoach on her own. Dangerous. Polite women weren't supposed to do that. Uh, There's some truth to that. But in fact, the Porter sisters regularly, because they didn't have much money, took stagecoaches by themselves to get places. What Jane Porter did in this case is took an overnight stagecoach. Did you know that there were overnight stagecoaches, right? It seems crazy. This seems absolutely crazy. Uh, But she was on an overnight stagecoach to Grantham. And during the day, it was a very long ride, during the day, she noticed that there was a kind of um, drunken man flirting with a woman he was sitting near across from her. And if you've seen these stagecoaches, you know they're tiny, tiny, tiny. But once night fall came, uh, Jane Porter was shocked and horrified that this couple that had been flirting with each other actually began making love in the carriage. I have to assume that this is the first time she's seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. And she writes this to her sister. And it's a letter that's both uh, serious and funny at the same time. She talks about how embarrassed she was, how shocked she was, and she compares herself to one of the heroines in a gothic novel who's being kidnapped. <laughs> and she says, I wasn't kidnapped. You know, I, my life wasn't in danger. I didn't scream. Like she's saying, should I have screamed? 
But what she decided to do instead was just to look out the window of the stagecoach at the chaste moon, as she put it, and try to distract herself and pay attention to the moon and ignore this couple going at it, basically right on top of her. And I just think that is a moment that is, like I said, a funhouse mirror version of Jane Austen. Like you can't imagine <laughs> this would ever happen right. uh, in the world of Jane Austen. Uh, Jane Porter certainly didn't put that in her books, but that is a moment that I think she describes through the history of the novel. And she sees herself as she describes as a new, a new kind of modern heroine having to make a choice in an, a situation she didn't want to be in for how to respond. I have to say it's also all too relatable because I've been in the same position on the red line and it happens, still happens today. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say, unfortunately. <laughs> we don't like to imagine that for quote unquote polite women in the early 19th century, uh, the similar kinds of exposure, I guess we could just call it for mm -hmm. a potential part of daily life. Uh, but I, I do wish that scene, which takes up very little space in sister novels, I wish that scene could could be a whole chapter. But I, I don't, um, I, I don't think that she ended up writing much about that outside of that letter. So many things when you're writing a book end up on the cutting room floor Indeed. as well, too. I mean, anything else that ended up on the cutting room floor that you're like, oh, I just wish I had I had a whole different opening to the book that I was playing around with for a while. Um, but this was when Jane and Anna Marie were already famous. And they, by this point, were living in a cottage in Surrey. And Jane and Anna Marie were sitting with their widowed mother, who also lived in the household with them. So three women in this dilapidated cottage in Surrey in, during the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, the neighbor, who was a friend, came rushing up to their door. And there's a whole letter that just describes this in great detail. The neighbor rushes up to the door and says, there is a sick soldier in town and the inn, the innkeeper just turned him away, like won't help him. He's lost his regiment. He's ill and he, nobody in town will give him help. They want to be paid first before they give him any help. And she was saying to the Porter women, what do we do? And they lived on the main Portsmouth road. So regularly they would hear regiments marching outside it probably shook their whole house <laughs> as regiments mm -hmm. were just heading from uh down to you know ports uh on the Portsmouth road down to Portsmouth to head on probably some of them off to their death in the Napoleonic ports so this must have been quite moving for the the sisters to hear this but Jane Porter overheard this footfall and she thought it's another regiment coming they heard the regiment passing their window and she decided I need to take action for this soldier so she went out into the street uh, and she shouted and she said, halt. <laughs> and this sea of soldiers stopped. She had a very commanding voice and they parted down the middle so that their officer, their, uh, their commanding officer could see her. And she said, I need to speak with you. And he came marching up and she has this description of him in this sort of Scottish kilt, looking like a beautiful, handsome <laughs> man going through the middle of his of rank and file officers. And she explains the situation to him about this officer who needs help. He arranges, he goes back to the town and arranges help. Uh, but at this point, he doesn't know at all who he's speaking to. And it's the next day that he learns that he's been speaking to the one of the one of the most famous authors in the country. 
and he returns to the cottage with a band and serenades the Porter women for having helped this soldier and spends time talking to these, these women, these great women of literature who've um, shouted down a regiment and an officer in order to help one poor sick soldier. And it's, I, I just, I love that idea. Also, you can just tell Jane is so attracted to this guy. <laughs> he's like, he's, he's beautiful beyond beautiful. I was thinking, <laughs> I was like, this would be a great, like, just starter for a romance novel too. Like, it does, it just, it, she writes about it in one long letter. That's from one long letter to a friend uh, that I've, that I've just tried to um, distill there, but it's, it's actually much more beautiful in her language. And I do wish that were in the book somewhere, but I just, I, lots of things needed to come out. And that was one of them. I've seen that some of their books are digitized because I'm sure that some of our audience members are going to want out and like run out and try to read some of their work. Good. Um, is there something that you recommend in particular? Um, something that's easy to access, which is always the problem. Some of them are quite long. So it depends how you feel about that. If you want to dip into each of the sisters, they published a book together in later life called Coming Out in the Field of 40 Footsteps. And that Coming Out is by Mariah and the Field of 40 Footsteps is by Jane. And those two together would give you a feel for each of them. Coming Out is, is more of a novel of manners and it's a kind of ways that society is making women's lives less good. <laughs> so it's a it's not in her historical novel vein. Uh, Field of 40 Footsteps is very much a story of brothers and dueling and superstition and death. And it's very much in the wheelhouse of their historical work and Jane Porter's work with legends and history. Uh, so th that'd be a great place to start. But if you're willing to do a longer book, then I would say Jane Porter's bestsellers, The Scottish Chiefs from 1810, which is perhaps quite possibly the uncredited source text for Braveheart, Mel Gibson's 1995 award-winning film. Don't know if you consider that a claim to fame or a claim to shame, but I will just throw that out there. <laughs> uh, or her first bestseller, Thaddeus of Warsaw from 1803. Those would be the places I might uh, send someone. Now, since this is going to be part of our best books of the year Aww. series, Aww. I know, right? <laughs> so we're recommending sister novelists to everyone to read. But then what other recommendations do you think we should give people? Um, is there anything, you know, you read this year that for research or pleasure, anything at all that you want to recommend? Absolutely. I mean, I, I will be honest, I haven't done as much reading this year as I would have liked. And partly... I mean, fair. <laughs> when you're when you're getting a, a book, of, you know, a long book ready for press, you don't get as much chance for for leisure reading. But I had the chance to read pre-publication Lucy Worsley's Agatha Christie biography, and I absolutely adored it. And people should definitely run out and buy it. And from the sounds of things, they already are. <laughs> I think it it came out uh, two weeks ago now, something like that. It came out. Um, well, I, I guess it came out in September and um, it, it just blew my mind. I read Agatha Christie a lot as a, a young teen and not much since. Like I've seen a couple of things dramatized and, you know, I, mean, I still have a fond, fond feeling for Agatha Christie, but I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a mystery reader. So you don't have to be a Christie fan, I think, to enjoy what's there. It's a life of writing. It's a life of a lot more adventure than I realized Um difficult economic privations, romantic problems, uh, mental health issues, just 
Lucy Worsley just brings it out all so beautifully. So I highly, highly recommend that one. And we are back. So we barely made a dent in our listener recommendations last week, and we didn't even get to any of our Instagram recommendations. Should we knock some of those out between the interviews? Yeah, let's do a few more here. Okay. So on Insta, Rhonda with a book recommended the Tita Rosie's Kitchen Mystery Series by Mia M. Menansala, starting with the book Arsenic and Adobo, which is described as a Nora Ephron romp meets Agatha Christie with a culinary twist. Great description there. I'm I'm intrigued. <laughs> Um, and Jill Dotful recommended Patience and Esther, an Edwardian romance, which is a queer historical graphic novel from Iron Circus Comics. And you can read the whole first chapter on their website, actually. Um, and I also just want to say that both Mia and Iron Circus are from Chicago. So got to love the hometown representation there. Sarah K. Cameron recommended Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which we discussed earlier this year with Dr. Caritha Mitchell, who is putting out an edition with Broadview Press. Larissa recommends Passing by Nella Larson after our read-along episode, and she followed it up with The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett and thought it was interesting to see just how much she was inspired by Larson. Joy J. recommended Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House, by Elizabeth Keckley, who was a modiste and a friend to Abraham Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln. And I can't remember if we've discussed this book on the podcast, but Lauren, you have read it and you used it as an inspiration for a children's book, didn't you? I did indeed. I actually um, published a children's book with Sunbird Press that came out earlier this year, and it's called A Stitch Through Time. And that was about black fashion designers. So I included Elizabeth Keckley, Anne Lowe, and Mildred Blount. And um, I highly, highly recommend Behind the Scenes. I think that text honestly should be required reading for high school students in this country, like for sure. Um, Joy A recommended Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss which is described as a dark, horrible, and powerful novella that tells the tale of Sylvie and her family who attempt to live like Iron Age Britons in the north of England. And I remember that I recommended that one to you last year or maybe two years ago. I was thinking that you might particularly enjoy that one, Hannah. Did you did you read it? Did you like it? I did. I actually read it this year. Oh, okay, cool. Just oh, before nice. or just after I read the best book of the year. Bear by Marion Engel. Um, okay. I, I really liked it. And when Joey was like, oh, someone recommended it on the show, I was like, oh, that's so... Because I just picked it up by chance. And I did love it. The reenactor in mm -hmm. me really loved it. It's short, too. It won a bunch of awards. And I want to say it was published in, like, 2016 or 17, somewhere around the there. It is the perfect length. Like, it is. That is, like, the whatever length, however many pages that book is, is... I bought a book three times as long as that to read this year. And I mm -hmm. I haven't, I just, I haven't done it. So. Um, it's funny because Elizabeth recommended The Fell, which is also by Sarah Moss. And that book was published in 2021. And it's about the pandemic. Okay. So like, I've been wanting to read it, but I'm just like, I'm not quite ready for it. Um, yeah, but I'm Moss, not ready for yeah. the pandemic content. <laughs> 
I've heard that it's it's heavy, but but really entertaining and interesting. And I do think Moss is like such a talented writer, and her books are really short, so mm. they're really easy to digest. But they're also very rich mm-hmm. as well. So anyway, I was glad. There's a lot that in those pages. There is. There. So she's she's economical. I'll say that. Yes. Elizabeth also enjoyed Mansfield Revisited by Joan Aitken and said that it wasn't the best Austin tie-in, but amused her for the fact that she basically sends Fanny and Edmund elsewhere for the majority of the book as she clearly thinks they're too dull. <laughs> Which I I approve of that. Yeah, me too. And Brittany recommended The Heiress, The Revelations of Anne de Berg by Molly Greeley, a novel that explores the questions, what if Anne wasn't really sick? So speaking of Austin retellings, I think now is the time for us to get to our second interview with the author of Pride and Protest, Nikki Payne. By day, Nikki Payne is a curious tech anthropologist asking the right questions to deliver better digital services. By night, she dreams of ways to subvert canon literature. She's a member of Smut University, a premium feminist writing collective, and is a cat lady with no cats. She needs some cats, doesn't she? Yes. Yeah. Have some of mine. Frankly, (laughs) I'm getting sick of them. I think people, so they know, they know a little bit, especially from when you were on the podcast last time. Mm Mm-hmm. But why don't you give everyone a synopsis? Like, sell us on this book. It won't be okay. hard because we love okay. we love Pride and Prejudice. Okay, okay, okay. If you love Pride and Prejudice. Okay, so mm-hmm. this is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. And my main character, Lisa, will do anything to get these Pemberley developers from gentrifying her DC neighborhood, which is called Meriton. <laughs> you see what I did there? I do. Um, so... But and, and Dorsey is the adoptive Filipino son of a white family, and he will do anything to get his Netherfield project done, right? So you can already see that they're kind of at loggerheads from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But um, as per usual, Lisa's chaotic family won't let her be great, and and um, they have their very famous kind of meet ugly, right? Where um, where they are. Um, forced to interact with each other in a way that surprises them both. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so what's what's so interesting is like, I, I'll introduce some tropes. Like there's a little bit of like only one bed and mm-hmm. a little bit of, I'm not supposed to want you, you know? <laughs> um, but it, it really, they really start to evolve to see um, how the other person is thinking. And they, they really, the two characters really kind of start off like stuck in their preconceived ideas about what's right and what's good. They think mm-hmm. when we bump into our characters, they think they're like kind of at the end of their story, you know, but, yeah. um, but they're going to find out pretty soon that they're actually like at the commencement of something, at the beginning of something. And mm-hmm. I will say if, that, if there's like a theme of the work, it's like, um, like live your life always like you're at the beginning of something. You know, these are two mm-hmm. characters that are just always, they were, they were shut down. They thought they knew what they knew about the world, about other people, about each other. And they, um, the one thing that they did that sometimes we don't do is um, allow themselves to be surprised, you know? Yeah. I love that take on Pride and Prejudice. 
that's so nice. You've said things I've never heard about Pride and Prejudice before in that. Yeah. yeah. Where does that rank on like the Austin scale for you? Like, are, is that your number one or? Oh, Persuasion is definitely my number one. But I will have to say that um, when you read things at certain ages, certain things come to you differently. So now as a, you know, cough, cough, aged woman, you know, mm-hmm. um, this like Anne's plight, Anne's resignation about her life at the beginning of persuasion, it just hits different, right? Mm-hmm. But when I'm 17, right? You're, I'm all about Catherine Moreland. I was, I was all about the Bronte sisters. I thought Rochester was romantic and not toxic. Right. <laughs> when I was 17, right? So I was just like, this is it, honey. This is life. Yeah. You know? um, so yeah, so I, I would say it changes, but persuasion is is my is my number one. And then Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, if Edward Ferrars were a hero I could get behind. He's a little is, wet, as Hannah likes to a, say. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I, that is perfect. That's perfect. He is a wet paper bag of a hero. And I just, I wish better for him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the beauty of a retelling because we can do that now. (laughs) I love it. Is there anyone in like, in your book now that you've like, uh, did you want to like improve them in some way or change them up in some way? Who, who, who were you like interested in attacking? Oh, oh man, I had so much fun with each of these characters. I'll tell you two characters that I um, wanted to um, think more deeply about. Mm -hmm. One is the Mary character. Um, I turned him into Maurice and I made him a kind of a hotep (laughs) uh, brother who Mm -hmm. is just, you know, has all these answers and um, knows precisely um, what the problem is with females, you know? Sure. And, um, Been yeah. on the internet maybe too much, read yeah. some stuff. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Just enough knowledge to get him in trouble. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, he has this kind of evolution um, at the end is that he's also what Mary was, was incredibly astute. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I allowed that, that one aspect of his personality to see itself out toward the end in a way that, that um, becomes like satisfactory for all these characters. Like he was this person who ended up kind of figuring this thing out really before anyone, even mm-hmm. though no one believes him because of the way he, you know, uh, talks about his own knowledge. You mm-hmm. know, everyone's just like, shut up, you'll never know. But he, <laughs> he was probably maybe the first person to, um, to guess at what was happening between his sister and, and Mr. And, and Dorsey. And another character that I just, again, had so much fun with was um, Janae. I wouldn't say that it was like fun, like the, mm-hmm. the thing that I did with her, but Janae is famously like super reserved. And she was this person who was a little cool and maybe hard to read, which is this major reason why Dorsey was just like, mm, you thought I was feeling you? You know, like just not. Yeah. Yeah, like she's not she's not that into you and that he would tell a friend that um, because she's hard to read. And I just what I wanted to do with Janae was um, give her character um, this depth and this cautiousness and this natural coolness um, that would make her incredibly um, 
intimidating to approach and hard to, to understand. So um, definitely made her like a, a black pageant girl. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. She's like this black pageant girl and, you know, like really kind of known for how preternaturally beautiful she is, right? In mm -hmm. a way that, that comes off as much more cold than she is, right? And um, she also has this kind of tragic backstory that makes her cautious to interact with, with people. And um, for that reason, I, I wanted to make, I wanted to make Janae or Jane um, this type of person where we, we understand her slowness to, to um, engage in this relationship. And we understand mm -hmm. where she's coming from, even if the characters around her don't. Why do you, maybe you, you gravitate towards retellings? What, what's the deal? Oh man, I Why love Why are we retelling, retelling Austin's stories? Oh, I love retellings. One, there is this, <clears throat> there's this like power in telling a story, full stop, right? Mm -hmm. But then there is this power of adding elements from another thing and telling a new story, right? Mm -hmm. Honestly, if you think about it, it's like the the nature or the way that like um, a lot of like traditional like black music has come about, right? If you think of mm -hmm. hip hop, right? And this notion of sampling, right? It's like, hey, that's a good piece of that song. That's a really nice hook. I want to do something different on top of that and see yeah. what comes of it, you know? And so if you can think of like retellings of these kind of interesting remixes, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, hey, I'm going to add this element, to put this on and then see how that song sounds to my ear. So mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I wanted to do, so I I'll start from the beginning. So like I'm a, by trade, I'm an anthropologist. And I was doing research on aesthetics and power and people's relationship with what they see is beautiful and what they see is, is um, lovely in its attachment to power and our notions of power. And I was reading this article about, about um, these dating apps and they had culled all this data from the dating apps and essentially um, said that black women and Asian men were the least responded to like in these dating apps, like when mm -hmm. they ping out someone say, hey, you want a date? Um, so they were like swiped right on, left on. You know, like the, I know I've never been on on the dating apps, but I I got you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and this is like you know, kind of wrapped up in our own notions of like who gets to be this um delicate, feminine, desirable woman, who gets to be this masculine, brooding, um, like protective man, like who gets to be the hero and who gets to be mm -hmm. the heroine, right? And so, in when I'm thinking about Jane Austen, I think about Jane Austen a lot. Um, I, I did think about what it would like, what it would be like for these two types of people, this black woman and this Asian man to inhabit these like archetypical heroes and heroines, right? Like if mm -hmm. you think of like this ideal male hero, Mr. Dorsey comes like right to mind, maybe just to me, but <laughs> you know, um, and when you think about this, like kind of light and delicate and like beautiful, desirable female, um, who still has her own wits about her, right? You think of Elizabeth Bennett. And I just, in in trying to retell this story, I also, I kind of actively chose these people and raced, you know, these characters the way they were on purpose to mm -hmm. see how much of that story you could tell, like how close can you get, right? <laughs> to the yeah. exact details with these major things changed. And it started to become this kind of experiment and then it ran away. And I was just having so much fun that um, 
that that's like the to me the power of retellings is that mm -hmm. it gets to become its own thing like you don't have to have ever cracked open Jane Austen I think to enjoy Pride and Protest mm -hmm. um, because the story starts to become its own thing but if you do if you have read Jane Austen you'll understand those themes and, and what kind of what has happened and how it looks on these different bodies so I was yeah. trying to do kind of two things at one time as we were just talking about I'm working on my own retelling and like there are bits, I'm, I'm sure you ran into this too, like where I'm like, okay, should I update this bit of dialogue? Actually, this bit of dialogue works. This yes. still works. Yes, yes. No, there's an entire scene where I was just like, this works and it works better, right? Mm -hmm. Like this this actually still works. And, and like, even if you hear someone saying, oh, this is like a really faithful, this is a really faithful um, application of like pride and, and prejudice. And it is, it is um, mostly because the experiment was about how faithful you can be when you yeah. rock the foundation. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you, um, when you shake the entire precipice, like what can stay the same? And mm -hmm. surprisingly, uh, a lot. You know? Yeah. It, it's wild. And you're like, oh, this is written 200 years ago. And we still, still, still. <laughs> Is there anything like in the book um, that like surprised you? Were you like, okay, actually, maybe this book is about X, Y, Z. I know with Jane Eyre, one of the things that I, I kind of was re like looking at, I was like, oh, this is a, this is a workplace. This is about work and work dynamics. I love it. And I didn't think that at seventeen, right? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So was there something for you that you were like, wait, this is this might be about X, Y, Z? Yeah, yeah. Um, so many times it's happened um, in Pride and Prejudice because I think you read it differently, like I mentioned, like in different mm -hmm. phases of your life. But I think the one thing that I like felt like I understood about Elizabeth and her family was that their entire livelihoods were on the line. And we mm -hmm. like originally you read you read it as this kind of romance and and it is like it's romantic and they get married at the end but um the more and more i read it i'm just like you know these um people are in dire straits and if these things don't happen right then they're like it's not just a bad day for them like they're right. completely ruined financially and mm -hmm. like more than anything it, it started to be this I don't know. I mean, I, I'm being, again, admittedly a little pedantic, but I, I felt like it was a story of a family and economic crisis mm -hmm. and a way that a one daughter could put and, and another daughter potentially brought them out of it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I recently reread Pride and Prejudice. And um, I think it's funny, like Hannah and I have this essay out about how sometimes the adaptations like the film adaptations can kind of almost rewire your brain and you start to yeah. think about those certain plot points is like the most important. But one of the things that I was really paying attention to this time was like the Lydia stuff. Everyone's freaking out about Lydia. The whole yeah. the whole village is gossiping about Lydia. Yeah. Like this is actually something that I think the, the film adaptations have not paid enough attention yep. to. Yep, no, you're absolutely right. And what's, what's interesting is I have this like theory about like who's the real villain in Pride and Prejudice. Ooh, who, and give us a theory. Who, oh. You guys want this a hot tea? Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to at me, but let me tell you something. Mr. Bennett is the villain, okay? Mm -hmm. And here's why. Five daughters, no savings, 
okay? Like laughing hysterically to the bank while his wife is saying, we're going to, like your bozo cousin is going to get this, your entire house. Can you just be for real? And Mm -hmm. he's just like sipping his tea. It's like, look at how stupid these people are, you know? (laughs) And he's just like, he's lived his entire life having absolutely no plan for yeah. the future of his family. And mm-hmm. I mean, even even at the end, when he gets this letter that says like, you know, uh, Mr. Dorsey, you know, maybe marrying your daughter, he brings Lizzie in for them to make fun of the very prospect that his daughter, um, Elizabeth, could attract Mr. Dorsey. And yeah. while he's laughing at her face, she was mortified. You know? Yeah, he was mortified. Yeah, and but still, at the same time, while his while his daughter was kind of missing and you know being mm-hmm. trafficked, essentially, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, he kind of shoves off responsibility to that to the gardeners as well. Yes, like they're they're pretty much dealing with it. They absolutely are because he came there and he just kind of like looked under like a little table, you know, and just like, well, look, I did my best. There. You yeah, know? and he's like, they'll they'll figure it out. And then when he gets the mail, he's just like, well, you know, I guess that's all figured out. You yeah, <laughs> there is like one line too I noticed where he says something like, essentially saying like, well, my plan was that she would have a son, Mrs. Bennett would have a son, and yeah. then we kept trying and we kept trying, and it's implied that there were like miscarriages or perhaps yeah. children who died, and yeah. then that was the plan. It was like, well, yeah. it's all on her, yep. essentially. Yep. Yep. And he could just like read his books and be this man of leisure and whatever happens to the estate out of his hands. You know, Mm -hmm. just like, eh, I don't know about that. Yeah. So you took that theory into your book, I'm guessing, right? If you. I I did it. I did it because I changed the Mr. Bennett character into a granny character. Right. Um, Who is who is, you know, um, been living in this apartment all her life. She sews for a living. And cannot actually, like in the way that things really are, cannot afford to like manage the financial future of mm-hmm. all of these people uh, underneath her, you know? So yeah. um, I made her a granny. So I took Mr. Bennett out in a kind of a way, you know, mm-hmm. but also gave her the authority of being Bev's mother, which, mm-hmm. you know, which just, which Bev just couldn't, Bev is the Mrs. Bennett character mm-hmm. who, and, and gives her that authority of just kind of that, the the final say in a matter um because mm-hmm. she's Bev's mother. You know? Oh, I'm excited to read this book. Any disadvantages you feel of doing an Austin retelling? Was there anything that kind of weighed heavy on you while you were working on it? Come, oh gosh. Come on. <laughs> the, my oh, my my biggest fear, like those, you know, those lady Karen's, you know? Sure. Like we don't need any, you know, there there's like this, hey, we don't need another Jane Austen, right? Mm-hmm. Another Jane Austen re- remake, retelling, like right. um, the first questions from agents, how am I going to sell this? Why do we need this? Et cetera. Mm-hmm. So like, so there are all of those questions. And then just like the protectiveness of the Jaff fandom of mm-hmm. like, of their history, of their, you know, of, of their characters, protecting in some instances, the whiteness of their characters and mm-hmm. the like social positioning of their um, characters, and um, yeah, I was I was nervous that this foray would be seen as like, you know, some something that they have to actually rally against. 
So I just I'm 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 anxious about the community being like really averse to to change, and mm-hmm. particularly um, there's some pockets of the community which are like deeply averse to like um, to multicultural aspects in any kind of like Regency novel to say like hey this isn't mm-hmm. historically accurate you know. Um, right. So like people are really protective of history. They want it to be, you know, to remain white and to re- remain ordered, you know, and to remain mm-hmm. and it, for it to look a certain way. And I, I, my answer to that is like, I can't write to them. I can't write for them, mm-hmm. even though I feel like that's a kind of a large part of the Jaff community sometimes. It's a shame too, because like the retellings, like they make it so accessible for you to see the material that you love in a different way and see the world in a new, a new way, see relationships yeah. in a different way, or just give you a, an easy way to like talk about these relationships yeah. and break them down. So, but I, I hear you on that. <laughs> Wait, it's yeah. so nerve wracking. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's going to be great. I think you're going to do fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was, it's sad because like we we're all in these like, you know, Facebook communities or other communities, and we all love the same thing. Like the mm-hmm. same things make make us swoon and our heartbeat faster, and for us to go, oh my god, you know. Um, but it, when it comes down to how these characters should should look, um, then all of these other ingrained societal things start to build up walls between what we all know is a beautiful story that we love to see told. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can you tell people what you might be working on next? You can oh, hint to, towards I can. it? You, I can you can. Tell okay, people. you're good. All right. Cool. I can tell people because it's in the back of the book. It's a chapter oh. in the book. Hell yeah. It is, okay. <laughs> it is a revamped Sense and Sensibility. Mm-hmm. It's called Sex, Lies, and Sensibility. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, that should have been the original title of the book, Nikki. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and it's about this these two sisters who mm-hmm. um, one, the oldest sister, has um, is struggling with kind of um, internet fame after having her um, uh, sex tape leaked. And oh. Oh. yeah, yeah, and she uh, heads off to the main woods. After she also finds out that she and her sister are the um, outside family <laughs> of mm-hmm. her father, and that they've just been like kind of entirely disinherited. inherited. Oh, this is fully juicy. Oh, it's very juicy. It's, it's, <laughs> it's very much giving days of our lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they head off to this last bastion of property in the Maine woods, and they're just like, "Wait a minute, there are no black people in Maine. This is not safe." <laughs> but the two sisters go up anyway with with wildly different temperaments and have to make this um, inn that they um, that they own profitable. And the, the problem yes. is that there are already um, people on this inn, in this inn, have been kind of illicitly using this place, which has been abandoned for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they um they're in a, a kind of an ecotourism this, this is a, a native american man and his sister ecotour mm-hmm. um, tour folks and what i loved about writing this story particularly was this aspect of um of like these black women coming to maine and owning this land right and then having to 
like negotiate with um, with the Native American community about what they own and having to feel like colonists, right? <laughs> and say, yeah, like, yeah. Well, wait, me? You know, mm-hmm. I didn't come on the Mayflower. And so, um, um, so in this book, I'm like trying to toy with like these broad ideas about like, like who who is the person? Like, what does it look like to actually have power? Does can a mm-hmm. can a a black person go to another place and context completely change? Like, can they be a colonizer? Like, do mm-hmm. they have to to still toe the line? You know, in those mm-hmm. like really interesting ways. So, well, th- I mean, I, it started off with this kind of interesting story that I wanted to tell about um, a Native American accusing this black woman of Columbusing. You know, and mm-hmm. just the way that that would like throw you for a loop as a black person. Yeah. So like, you know, like, yeah. like all of these reasons. And so it started off honestly wanting to redo that scene. And then it just spilled out into what I think is a really beautiful story of these two people who, for very real reasons, are restrained against um, the love that they felt immediately. I mean, that's another mm-hmm. thing about sense and sensibility that I love is like these two sisters like even though they're wildly different like they fell in love very fast very quickly really at the same time it's just mm-hmm. one one sister was obnoxious about it you know and <laughs> yeah. another sister um pretended like she hadn't you know and mm-hmm. so like and it's just like the story of what happens to these two sisters who um who do that so um so i'm i'm really excited about that i loved writing that i love the characters that ended up coming out of that story I love that we see your anthropology roots, like just right oh, yeah. there immediately, yeah. right? Yeah. Such an interesting aspect to the story. And also that you're really getting to the heart of just, like, yeah, power dynamics, yeah. Pa- power and eco- economic issues yeah. within Austin's work. Like that's. Oh, you know what? Okay. If you read Sense of Sensibility, I literally, like I've, I've read it maybe four times by now. And on the fourth time, I'm just like, all she is talking about is money. Like yeah. she will sit there and list for like an entire page, their allowance, like the, the, um, the amount of rent for Barton, you know, for the, like mm-hmm. literally everything is spilled out. And I'm just like, these are like economic stories. She's spending mm-hmm. a lot of time telling you how much money everyone has, how much money they're going to make, how much they plan to lose. And it's, it's, and so I make these stories, a lot of the stories at the end, they are economic stories. They are mm-hmm. about money. Because I think that's why yeah. she's so timeless, honestly. Yeah. Like, because yeah. people write about love, but not everyone writes about love and money. Can, and can you have both? And Jane Austen yeah. is just like the real G. <laughs> get you, get you a G that does both. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Jane Austen, one hundred percent. Jane Austen's like cool story that you love them. You know, but <laughs> I've also been like working very closely with um, the Wabanaki Confederacy in Maine, and like. Mm-hmm. And like working with that community up there and just, you know, like making sure that I'm not like telling a Native American story, it's still very much the story of like two black girls who go to Maine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't wanna, you don't really wanna mess up that type of um, character, you know? Like yeah, you, don't wanna, <laughs> you don't want to, um, to guess, you know, on that, on that type of uh, character. So I was really, I wanted to be really attentive to mm-hmm. uh, having a Native American character. Is there um, an Austin book that you won't retouch for retelling? Just curious. Um, I can I tell you a secret? Sure. I mean, it's a a secret on a podcast. Me and you and the podcast listeners. Okay. 
I can't. I don't understand Fanny. I just. I keep. I I just. I keep thinking that Jane Austen wrote her as this. Like she was just trolling us when she wrote Fanny. Because like (laughs) if you think about Jane Austen, like how much she loved plays and how Mm -hmm. like how um, a little side eye she was toward you know the you know religious figures like Mr. Collins, you know, like Mm -hmm. and like Fordyce, you know, like she had the side eye, but she also manages to make Fanny the most priggish person like one of her most priggish character heroines and you know who just like tentatively loves her cousin and I just I can't I I can't believe that she was like this is ideal yeah um, because even with the retelling what's interesting too is that like with the retelling that I'm working on I still want to keep the character sort of like the character's wildly different but there's like the spirit of the character is still there mm -hmm. But with Fanny, it's like, I want to change the spirit of the character. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's it. Like, with Fanny, yeah. you want to just make her a different person. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. <laughs> like well, maybe yeah. the Fanny got bought, like, she, the real Fanny's in a coma, and I'm going to pretend to be Fanny. You know? Like, now yeah. I'm going to do this person who's actually not my cousin. Like, I would literally have to contort the novel in such a way as to make Fanny, um, you know, someone I could enjoy as a character. Please don't hurt me. I just, you know, I, that's, I mean, people have done that, right? In the film adaptation, we got a different Fanny. Um, I love Kate Hamill's adaptation of yeah. Mansfield Park, the play version. That is a completely different Fanny. It is. So, yeah, I mean, you're not the only one that feels this way. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. I understand like, the hesitation. In order for this to work, the, the main character has to go, right? It has and to then, go. Or not be the main character. I mean, okay. or, you know, I would... Yeah. Be like, let's let's tell Mary Crawford's story. I don't know. <laughs> Come on. Mary Crawford's so sexy, bro. Like she is yeah. everything. Now, what have you been reading this year? Have you been oh. reading it sounds like you've been working a lot. I've been working a lot, but I've been reading a lot. A mm. lot, lot. Um, I have been right now I'm reading Weight and Blood. It's like mm. um it's honestly it's like so far it's giving like Stephen King Carey black. Okay. Like okay. I think it's a retelling. And I think that's my brand. I just really love retellings. Mm-hmm. Um, let me go through my uh, list because it's a lot. Um, Fairy Tale by Stephen King. I guess it's a vibe. Um, I am reading uh, We Free the Stars by Hafsa Faisal. Oh my gosh. Um, I just fell in love with Hafsa Faisal um, and her storytelling and how gorgeous she writes. Um, mm-hmm. I love that. Um I read Angelica Frankenstein makes her match. I feel like I read a lot of retellings. Wow. You're looking <laughs> at like, it, you're like, wait a minute. Wait I'm a having minute. a realization. Wait a minute. The Sally Thorne is very just quirky and amazing. Oh, People Person I finished. God, that's great. People Person by Candace Carey Williams. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Um, she wrote Queenie. And okay. um Queenie was just this fantastic narrator and she ups the ante in people person and just mm-hmm. really turns all of these characters into like living, breathing people in your living room. And I just, I loved it so much. And we are back. Hannah, before we shut down this episode, any last book wrecks you want to throw out there? Actually, yes. And this one goes out to Nikki. Hmm because I bought a great picture book this year. I really, really, really loved it. It was called Millions of Cats 
by Wanda Gag, I want to say. It's from the 1920s, and I've seen it credited as the first American picture book. And it's really cool. I just love it. And I would definitely recommend grabbing it if you see it. Okay. Millions of cats. I would I would get a millions of cats tattoo, but I just need to double check that Wanda's not like problematic, you know. <laughs> before that before that happens. Before I commit. I mean, I think that like the millions of cats like fandom is probably not very big. So I'm guessing most people, <laughs> if they saw that like that tattoo on you, they won't they'll just think it's a cat. Yeah, and also I could just say like, oh, it's for the twenty nineteen film cats. If anyone like mm. really pushes me on it, so yeah, well, I know that is your favorite yes. movie. <laughs> yes. So there's that. Um, oh my gosh, there were like so many recommendations that we did not get to. And uh, I just want to take a minute to thank everyone for sending them in. They were so good. Um, I'm just going to call out like a few more that stood out to me. Alicia really enjoyed the unselected journals of Emma M. Lyon. Emma M. Lyon. <laughs> And that's by Beth Brower. This is a series of novellas set in London in 1883. And each volume is another like excerpt from one of Emma's journals. And I just thought that sounded really great. I'm really, I'm really into it. Got a lot of good reviews on Goodreads. Um, Kira Bell read Dorothy Whipple this year, who is one of my favorite authors. An author that I talk about constantly and yet... We have not covered her on the show. Um, so Kira Bell recommended Someone at a Distance by Whipple. And uh, Kira Bell, you have to tell me if this one made you cry because I I really sobbed at this book. I was also postpartum, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that was it, but you, just let me know. Um, she also read The Priory, which is a really fantastic book as well. And you can get those both from our favorite publisher slash bookstore persephone and persephone has now moved to bath and hannah now that you've just become a lecturer at bath spa university will you be visiting often yes <laughs> i'll be i'll be going in to bath a little more often now uh, mm-hmm. very exciting because it's home to some of my favorite bookshops you know there's also toppings and mr b's and they're all very close to each other so mm-hmm. yeah it's gonna it's going to cost some money, I think, sure. working at the university. <laughs> so, yeah. And also, let me give a shout out to Storysmiths, which is my favorite Bristol bookshop. Oh, well, let me throw out a bookstore recommendation. Um, there is a brand new comic shop by me here in Chicago called Howling Pages. And they sell like European comics, which mm. is, you know, it's hard to get over here. So it's not like, you know, the floppies, like superhero type shop, like you're getting a lot of um, imported books. And um, they also sell them online as well. So you guys can, you can purchase online from them. So I'm going to just do one more listener recommendation and then we're done. And this one is from Gothic Bookworm who recommended The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, which I think should be on the official like Bonnets at Dawn reading list that exists in my mind. I know other people, (laughs) like lots of people talk about this book. People recommend this book every year. A lot of um, the academics that we have on the show reference this book quite often. Um, And the other book that she recommended was uh, Middlemarch. 
So I just think we should just leave it on that note. Like, guys, read, read Middle it. March. <laughs> I've read it. Just I know I have. I'm going to I'm going to get started on it someday. I think maybe <laughs> next January or next mm-hmm. next July I'll get started mm-hmm. on it. Mhm. The next time we read a George Eliot book which will take us about 6 years to cycle back to and it's not middle march and then I say have you finished middle march you're just going to be like well I tried. Maybe 2023 will be the year of middle march. It is not no. It's not going to be. It's not no. Would that be not. like the biggest surprise if I just like full out read middle march? If you read Middle March in 2023, yes. But I can, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, it's not 2023. Oh. It's not the year that we read Middle March and Bonnets at Dawn. Oh, Everyone, no, no. simmer down. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no there's some <laughs> other stuff going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. L- what's what's happening next year, Hannah? Can you tell us? Yeah, we've got other stuff. We've got other stuff planned. We're returning to a favorite. You're all going to be mm-hmm. very excited to hear that, you know, drum roll, please. Mm-hmm. We're going to mm-hmm. read Emma. Yeah. We haven't read Emma yet on the show, so hopefully we haven't. You're, all, you're all going to enjoy that. And we've got I some. I can't you know, wait. We've got some plans. We've got some books that tie in. There are some books yeah. that we read this year that tie in. So, yeah, twenty twenty three, not the year of Middlemarch, the year of Emma, the year of Emma, and twenty twenty two was the year that I listened to the Emma audiobook five times in preparation for twenty twenty three. So, <laughs> I'm all in already. I I can't wait to revisit it. It's been a long time since I've read it. So I am happy to go back to a fave. And we're going to look at the adaptations as well. And I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts. And we have some awesome guests lined up for that. So yeah, it's exciting. So big, big thanks to our special guests today, Nikki Payne and Devaney Lozer. You can find them online at devanielozer.com and nikkipainbooks.com. And you can find even more about our upcoming Emma read-along, as well as some more book recommendations on our social media. Hannah, how do the people find us online? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn and you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, in English and Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary books. <laughs>